Well, it's good to be here and to see you again. Uh, could we just bow together, please, and let us come to the Lord in prayer. Well, God, our Father, we bow before Thee. We bow in the name of Thy Son. We thank Thee for the one who brings us near, brings us nigh to God. And we come with gladness, with thanksgiving unto Thee. We bow down, O Lord, at Thy feet. We come as those who are but supplicants, those who are in need of the help of God afresh. We thank Thee for the way of access that we have into Thy courts, into Thy presence. We bless Thee for the Son of God who loved us, who gave Himself for us, and who paid the price for our sin, and then rose again triumphantly. And upon the ground of His merit, we come to Thee now. We commend this time into Thy hands. We thank Thee for the opportunity to gather, to study the Word of God. And we pray, Lord, that Your blessing, Your presence, Your help will be known even as we meet together. We pray for each brother and sister who gathers in this class. We remember those who watch online. Oh, Lord, we pray that every heart will be given grace to understand and to receive Thy Word. Lord, breathe on us from above. Come down in power, we pray, as we wait at Thy feet. We commend our ways to Thee. We think of this entire day that lies ahead of us. Lord, we rejoice that we have the privilege of being in the house of God, that we're spared to be here, that You put the desire in our hearts to be here. And Lord, we pray that throughout the day as people gather in the various assemblies, Thou wilt come among us and Thou wilt visit us with power and with blessing. And so give us help now and watch over us, we pray. We ask all of these petitions in Christ's name and for His glory and for His eternal praise. Amen and amen. We turn to Malachi and to the third chapter, Malachi chapter 3. I want to read some verses there, and I trust the Lord's Word will be a blessing to our hearts. We welcome you, welcome those online. It is our prayer that the Lord will touch our hearts as we gather before Him. So, Malachi chapter 3, and the verse number 13. And we'll read from there just down to the close of this chapter, Malachi 3.13. And Malachi, bringing the Word of God, writes this, "'Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance?' and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name." And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to our hearts. Now, Malachi, it closes the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament canon of Scripture, 
significantly the last word of Malachi, and therefore the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. If you look at the very end of chapter 4, the Lord says, I will come and smite the earth with a curse. This is an absolute contrast with how the Bible begins. Here we are at the end of the Old Testament, and we go in our minds to the beginning of the Old Testament, and we find that the first view of things there is not the curse, but is creation in all of its glory, all of its beauty, with no sin, with no fall, and therefore, of course, no curse. And so, in many ways, Malachi sums up the state not only of Judah in Malachi's his own time, but of all humanity because of the fall of man. And so, what we sense when we, when we read that word curse and we read this book of Malachi as a whole, because in many ways it's a very foreboding book, a book of great weight and great solemnity, we, we find that man is under sin, that man is condemned, man is under the curse of a broken law. That's how the Old Testament ends, and that's very significant. And that's why Malachi has a very strategic position in the uh, minor prophets and even in the whole of the Old Testament because of the nature of how his book actually closes. So, the book stands in a strategic position, as I've said. It summarizes the contrast between man's two opposing states as revealed in the Old Testament, his created state and now his cursed state. And so, that's what's brought before us as we think about the big picture of mankind, just not Judah, as I say, in Malachi's days, but the whole of mankind is, is under this curse that's in view when we have a look at the, how the book ends. Now, in keeping with that detail that this book ends with a curse, Malachi's, Malachi is God's final word to man in Old Testament times. From the time of Malachi to the Lord's day, the Lord's birth, there is a period of approximately or around 400 years, and I'm sure you've often heard that, and that, of course, is correct. Nobody can pinpoint it exactly, but it's around 400 years from the end of the Old Testament, from Malachi's book here, until the Lord is born. That period is referred to in various ways, that 400-year period, I mean, is referred to as the intertestamental period the intertestamental period, the space of time between the Old and the New Testaments, or it's also described as the 400 silent years. During this period, there was no word from God. No prophet was sent uh, to, to Israel, to Judah, uh, at that time after Malachi. In other words, heaven was silent. Now, of course, there was divine strategy and purpose and all of that, because the Old Testament is now finished with Malachi's book, and there's nothing more that God has to say or will say or will reveal with regard to that Old Testament period. The Old Testament is now complete, and from a positive point of view, we can actually say that and, and therefore rejoice in that sense that while there's 400 silent years to come until the New Testament Yet God has finished what He wanted to say in the Old Testament period. The Jews have the Old Testament, remember. It's not that 
the, 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 the Word of God in the Old Testament has come to an end and, and it has disappeared or something like that. It's in the hands of the Jews. It's, uh, it's something that they have and that they are keeping. They're the custodians of the Old Testament and they keep it in good, uh, good, good uh, content right through all those 400 years. So they still have the Word of God in their hands, even though heaven is silent and nothing more is actually coming. In that sense, Malachi's prophecy, along with the rest of the Old Testament, was sufficient. And this also reveals a strategic possession. It's sufficient. You don't need any more above and beyond what the Lord has given in the Old Testament. And of course, through Malachi, the final writer. Remember in the first study that I brought some weeks ago on Malachi, we learned that his name means God's messenger. And that means that Malachi spoke clearly. He was God's messenger. And one of the things that he did was he prepared the way for New Testament times. He's the final prophet of the Old Testament, and like some of, the, uh, of his predecessors uh, among the prophets, he predicted the future, the coming of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and of course, the coming of the Lord Himself. Just again, cast your mind there and your eye upon chapter 3, verse 1, and read the words once more. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And that, of course, is Christ speaking prophetically through Malachi of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so it's clearly stated that one is coming and he will prepare the way before the Lord. And so we saw that. And then it goes on to say in the next part of that verse, chapter 3, 1, And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. You see, the Jews, largely speaking, had a delight in the one who's called the messenger of the covenant. This is the Messiah. And they were aware, they were conscious of what the Lord had said, that a Messiah would come. And it was their delight to learn of the Messiah, to read about him. And of course, that was revealed from the very time that man fell. And the Jews were always looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And they did delight in the concept. That's the point. They delighted in the truth in the concept of Messiah, in their minds, to a great degree, what they were thinking was, this Messiah is coming, and He's going to bring us a political deliverance, a national deliverance. Because Israel, you see, had been downtrodden and overthrown time and time again during Old Testament ages. And of course, it was for their own sin. They, they always seemed to fail to see that. And of course, we're the same. The church of Jesus Christ falls on hard times as generations go by, and the presence of God is withdrawn, and, and the blessing is not what it used to be. All these things are true. And we always must keep in mind this is for our own sin that we suffer in this way. But anyhow, while they had a delight in the concept of the Messiah, they, they didn't realize, they, they couldn't seem to see who he would be, and what would happen when he would come, and what he would actually do. They were blind to all that. And so, 
I just draw your attention to those, those irrelevant thoughts because here is the Lord actually saying, the Lord whom ye seek, that's Christ Himself saying, I'm coming. I shall suddenly come to my temple. And He's called the messenger of the covenant. And so Malachi did predict New Testament days. Though his book ends with a curse, yet he speaks of the future. And he gives light. He gives hope. He gives a message that is designed to lift the hearts of the saints and cause them who do know the Lord to rejoice in what will yet be in, in, in New Testament days. They had no idea when all this would happen. Nobody could tell them it will take 400 years. It just was a matter of those four centuries rolling by. And the Lord then came in His own appointed time. So Malachi predicted these things. If you look at chapter 4 and verse number 2, he also predicted the second coming of the Lord. And that's very important. It says in Malachi 4.2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And that's a title for Christ, the Son, S-U-N, with a capital S, Son of Righteousness. It's one of the great names of the Lord. It signifies the whole matter of the Lord's being. He's the light of the world. In Him there's no darkness at all. He's the Son of Righteousness specifically in that He comes with the message of His own perfect righteousness in order to justify sinners and to uh, declare them righteous before God. He would arise with healing in His wings. Didn't the Lord say that He had come, that He would come not to destroy the world, but to save it? And that's really what those words are saying. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in order to save men and women from their sins. So, in all these ways, we can see that Malachi's prophecy not only underlines the issue of the curse that sin has brought, but it also points to the remedy that is found in and experienced through the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Malachi's days, there was a remnant. And that's what we see in the verses I read with you this morning. From verse 16 through to verse 18, you read of a remnant of people who were faithful to the Lord, who who loved the Lord, and we notice certain things about them here in these verses. This is one of the outstanding encouragements in Malachi, the presence of a remnant of true believers amidst the darkness and the apostasy of those times. I haven't really set out yet, and I will do that in the next study with the Lord's help, that the significant points through this book that underline how far away Israel have actually drifted already. And remember, when I say already, what I mean is these are people who have come back from Babylon, along with those in Ezra's book, Nehemiah's book, and now in Malachi's day. There was another return from Babylon in Malachi's day. And, and yet, taking those who had gone back to Jerusalem in the times of, of Ezra, and that was about a hundred years before the people in Malachi's day came back, there has already been a, a falling away. They have drifted. 
And we have to look at that if we're going to see this book in an overview sense. Some of the features, some of the salient points, <coughs> excuse me, about how these folk had uh, fallen away already. But in the midst of it, there was a remnant. Now, notice how the remnant people here are introduced to us. If you, if you look where I started to read verse 13, and God says to, uh, to people in Judah, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. This is actually one of the marks of their falling away. They, they, they said things about the Lord. And He says, here's what it was. Your words have been stout against me, or strong as what it means, as you'd understand. And we'll see more about that. But just notice what, uh, what is said here. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. That's what they said against the Lord. That's what these people are saying who have been brought out of Babylon by the Lord. They were saying, it's vain to serve God. I will look at those words and also other outstanding statements through this book in, in the next study in the will of the Lord. But this is the background uh, to what is now said. And so, verse 14, verse 15, you have the words of these people, what they were actually saying, what they were actually doing against the Lord. And so, you get to verse 16. And notice how verse 16 starts. Then they that feared the Lord. Here's the remnant. Here's a remnant of faithful people who have a fear of the Lord. And what do they do? Well, we're going to look at that today in uh, the rest of this study, because this is very important. Uh, what we're finding is that God never leaves Himself without a people. He never leaves Himself without a witness, as it says there in the book of Acts. There's always a, a band, whatever size it might be. Uh, there's always a, a company of saints who, who are, yes, very much in the minority, but they do speak up for the Lord. They love the Lord. They want to follow the Lord. They want to do as well. And brethren and sisters, that's the company concerning which we should want to be identified. Not the, the majority who, who speak against the Lord, who criticize the Bible, who say whatever they have to say that's very negative about, about God and His Word and His truth and the gospel. And you see, the Christian church has always fallen away into that kind of behavior, that kind of speech against the Lord. And it is a tragedy, but it, it happens, and it still happens. And here we find it's happening in Malachi's day, and yet there was a group of people who are God's remnant. As we notice these closing verses in, in Malachi chapter 3, a people who owned the Lord amid great darkness, and therefore, they are a people favored by the Lord. Because notice how he speaks of them. In verse 17, he refers to them as my jewels, my jewels. And that language signifies a people who are favored by the Lord. It signifies that they are special to the Lord. They're my jewels. And so I want to look at 
these words here and all these verses for a little time here before we close today, having outlined for you something about the position of this book and how it's so important both for the close of the Old Testament and looking forward into the New Testament, and yet it has a message here concerning God's remnant. But notice here their value. The Lord places a great value upon His people in that He refers to them as His jewels. Now that word jewel, it's plural here, jewels, but just taking the word itself, jewel, it is often used, and we'll see this now uh, as we go through these thoughts, it's often used in the Old Testament and it's translated in various ways and it signifies that the Lord's people are His peculiar treasure, a special treasure. Actually, it's what the word signifies. That means that the Lord places a value upon His people in that He refers to them as His jewels or His special treasure or His peculiar treasure. Now, how do we explain that? Because if we think about ourselves, we're thinking about uh, anybody uh, who is a child of God, well, we would all have to confess, well, I don't see myself as being anything special or anything uh, that's worthy of any praise. I think we would all say that if we're honest. And yet, how do we explain this? Because the Lord calls us His jewels, His special treasure. And the answer is, the Lord calls us or describes us in this way because of what He does for us in and through His own Son. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, and look there, please, at verse 4. This is how we understand how uh, the Lord's people are referred to in this way. 1 Peter 2, verse number 4, and it says uh, in, in Peter's words here, to whom coming that is coming to Christ, as unto a living stone, this allowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now there is the Lord Himself in verse 4 described as a living stone. He's described as a precious stone, essentially. And if you go on into the next verse, uh, verse number 5, ye also as lively stones, that's the same word, that, uh, it's the same translation, therefore, living, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So, so Christ is, is described as a living stone, but even more as a precious cornerstone. And then believers are also described by Peter here as living stones. And we are living in the sense that we've run out of the deadness of our sin into union with Jesus Christ. We have been built into Him and erected in this world as a company of people who constitute the house of God. That's really what Peter says, for he says in verse 5, you're built up a spiritual house. I looked at that with the whole congregation some weeks ago when I preached from Ephesians 2 about the church being the habitation of God. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, I know that we talk about this as the house of God, and that's fine, but 
And the Bible refers to the house of God in terms of the Old Testament temple or even Ezra's temple that was built in his day, and that's fine. But essentially, the house of God in the Bible is the people of God. And they are being built into a spiritual edifice. They are recognized by God as being His because He sees them in Jesus Christ. They're united with the Lord. They're in union with the Lord. And so He sees them in the Lord. And in that sense, they are His precious uh, stones, His jewels, His uh, special treasure. You see, the Lord, isn't He referred to in the, in the parables as the pearl of great price? In other words, about Christ, the one to whom we're joined, there's an infinite value, an infinite worth. When we are joined to Christ, the worth of Christ, the value that's in Christ, is transmitted to us. We're seen as He is seen. We are accepted as He is accepted. We have a value in the sight of God that we didn't have before. The Bible speaks of stones a lot. And it certainly uses the idea, the concept of the stone as it refers to sinners. Sinners are referred to as having stony hearts. In the book of, of uh, Hosea, it talks about sinners as having hearts like an adamant stone, a stone that was extremely hard. And so that was our state. And in that state of hardness of heart and, and being callous because of sin before the Lord saved us, well, we had no value to God. We were worth only uh, being cast away and, and despised uh, like a heap of rubble. But then the Lord takes us and He calls us living stones because we're viewed in Jesus Christ. What great things are done for sinners in Jesus Christ. And as we take that word, going back to Malachi here, that word jewel or jewels, and we trace it through the, um, the Old Testament, we find, for example, that believers are His special treasure because He has chosen them. I want you to go to Deuteronomy now, chapter 14. And in Deuteronomy, this word for jewels is used a number of times. We'll be looking at these verses so you can keep your finger in Malachi and stay in Deuteronomy here for a moment or two. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse number 2, it says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. The word for peculiar there in verse 2 is the very same word as for jewel. And here we read of the Lord's people in the Old Testament times, and they were chosen by Him as His treasure, His peculiar people. And we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 2, the very same thing as I've just shown you. And over there in, in 1 Peter again 2 verse number 9, it says this, Ye are a chosen generation. And so God places the word chosen on His children, on His people. And therefore, believers are special to the Lord, they're the Lord's treasure, because of the fact that He has chosen them. And so the idea that's in Deuteronomy is carried over into the New Testament by the Apostle Peter in his writings. And that's interesting because Peter was the Apostle 
to the circumcision, the Jews. And Peter therefore carries the, the thought forward out of the Old Testament. God had said in Deuteronomy, here are my people. They are a chosen people. They're a special people. And Peter applies that then to the church and the New Testament. So see that, dear brother or sister. You are special to the Lord, and it's verified by the fact that the Lord chose you. That word uh, peculiar that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.9, a peculiar people, means an acquisition. And the word acquisition comes from the verb to acquire. So if you go out tomorrow and you buy a pair of new shoes, you've acquired them, and they're now your acquisition. You take them home, they belong to you. And so that's the thought that is in the New Testament word for peculiar. It means an acquisition, and it means that God has acquired His people. They're His people, they're His jewels, because He has bought them at great price. And it's the price of the death of the one to whom I earlier referred, the one who's called the pearl of great price. That's Christ in that little parable in Matthew 13. And so Christ Himself is of infinite value. His blood that was shed as the price is of infinite value. That means that those who are bought, acquired by God, chosen by Him, uh, and uh, brought on to Him through Jesus Christ are certainly uh, people who are regarded with a very, very uh, clear estimation in the mind of God. They're the choice of Almighty God who by His free grace chooses them out of the nations of the earth. They are chosen, but they're also called. If you'll go now to Exodus, we'll come back to Deuteronomy, but go now to Exodus chapter 19, and look with me at how the same word is found here in verse 5 and verse 6. So, Exodus 19, 5, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which I shall speak unto the children of Israel. So here's the word again in verse 5, and this time it's translated peculiar treasure. Now notice the context here. Look at verse 3 of Exodus 19. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. That's the Exodus, which was an act of redemption on God's part. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you unto myself. There's the idea of God calling His people. He called them to be a special treasure. And that's what He goes on to say in verses 5 and 6 here in Exodus chapter 19. And so, it's through redemption and on the basis of redemption, that we are called by God to be His people. And again, you see the idea there. This is why God's people are His jewels. If you take Israel, 
they were in Exodus, they were a lost people, they were a, a people in bondage and captivity, but the Lord called them out and made them as jewels through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and does the same, of course, for His people today. And so, in that way, He calls us and He makes us to be His jewels. Now, it is a fact, brethren and sisters, that only God can make jewels. After all the efforts in laboratories, no chemist can make a diamond or any kind of precious stone. Yes, they, they know the elements that may be in a particular stone, a precious stone, but they cannot make them, nor can they explain how they are made. When men go searching for diamonds, as they still do, and diamonds are still being found, they don't go and dig in, a, in the ground and find certain uh, elements in the ground and, and then they form it into a diamond. No, they go and they dig in the ground and they find a diamond. It could be small, it could be large, and some very, very large diamonds are still being found in, in, in the earth. How did they get there? Well, uh, I can't tell you exactly in terms of a process. All I know is that it was God who seen to it that those diamonds are there. And then they're taken out of the ground and they're, they're worked on, of course. The, the lapidary's wheel, as it was called in old times, or whatever way they do it today, they, they, they cut them and they polish them and, and all the rest. And, and so when you went to buy your wife an engagement ring uh, and it was one of diamonds, well, uh, there's a lot of work went into that before it could be in that state of things. But what I'm simply illustrating is men cannot make diamonds or any other precious stone. It's only the Lord who can do that. It's only the Lord who can take a sinner and turn him into a jewel, into a precious stone, into a peculiar treasure. You see, believers are jewels because they're chosen and they're called. But even uh, another thought here, and if you'll turn now to Deuteronomy 7, you'll notice this. They are a covenant people. And you'll, uh, in Deuteronomy 7, this comes out, just look with me in that chapter, at verse 6, Deuteronomy 7, verse number 6, it says, But thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. There's the word again, the word special, a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, there's His covenant, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so we find that they are a covenant people. Why are God's people jewels? Because God not only chose them and then called them, but He covenanted to make them His own, to have them to be His special people. And what a wonder of grace we see 
in all of that information, all of that Old Testament use of the word that's translated dual, turning back here to, to Malachi chapter 4, please. That's this word that's translated dual, where the Lord says of His people that they are my jewels. And we find that all of this brings forth the value that the Lord places upon those who are His. How do we, how do we apply that to our hearts, to our, our minds? The very fact that the Lord calls us His jewels. Well, here's how we should use that language. We should see ourselves as a people who have a value in Jesus Christ that specifically is given to us, this value, because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. In other words, seeing ourselves that way, it will humble us. It's designed to humble us. It's designed to deal with people having this lofty view of themselves. And even Christians, it can creep into Christians' minds. Uh, they, they, they maybe study out some theology and they get a hold of a certain line of thought that the Lord chose me or the Lord uh, set me apart from eternity. And they, then they start to think, well, that means I'm special. And it does from the point of view of, of God's work and, and God's uh, covenant mercies. But not from the point of view of anything that's in us. But the problem is with some Christians, they run away with this. And then they start to look down their noses at other people who don't hold those particular views of the gospel. And other people may have views of spiritual things that are just not square on. But it doesn't mean that they aren't the Lord's people. We must always keep that in mind. We are not saved. We don't become the Lord's people because we have gained a certain knowledge above other people. That's pride. That's ostentation, and that needs to be driven out of our hearts. The hymn writer says in that old hymn, in one of the lines, I even forget how it starts, but this line, the only value I have before him is the value of the blood. That's what gives us a value before God. And that's how we apply this. It should cause us to, to get down before God and say, Lord, why did you ever save me? And even more than that, Lord, I have no value before you except this, the value I have in Christ. This truth also deals with another problem that's very prevalent in, in modern-day uh, so-called Christianity. And that is the teaching that Christians need to get a, a, a higher estimation of themselves. And you see, that's how the world talks. You've got to assert yourself. You've got to value yourself. You've got to have a, a higher estimation of yourself and, and so forth. But what they're really talking about is from a humanistic point of view. And it's all wrong. It's a philosophy that's in the world. Men love to think of themselves highly. They think, oh, they love to estimate themselves in a way that is filled with pride and arrogance and, and all those sinful uh, perceptions of themselves that are completely and utterly ungodly. 
But this is what's been taught in many Christian circles. You, you've got to have, have a higher value of yourself. A higher esteem is the word, or the term that's often used. And then when the people say, well, what does that mean? They're told, well, you esteem yourself because you've got all these abilities and you can do this and do that and the other thing. No, my dear friend, that is not according to the gospel. The gospel humbles us. The gospel is designed to let us see we're nothing, that we have nothing in which to boast. Paul says, God forbid that I should boast. That's really what the word glory means there in Galatians 6, 14. God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, brethren and sisters, we're all susceptible to this. And so when the Lord called, I mean, this pride, this feeling, you know, we're, we're something. No, we are nothing. We're absolutely nothing. And the Lord calls us jewels. We have a value before Him simply because of Jesus Christ. Very quickly, there's only their value here but their visibility. Because if you think about a jewel again, well, a jewel sparkles, it radiates light, uh, the precious stone, and we know this. It sends forth rays of a brilliant hue when uh, it is seen in a certain, uh, at a certain angle. Let me remind you something. A jewel only sparkles when light is brought to bear on it. It is no light of its own. That's a fact. A jewel, it'll be dark, it'll be dull until it's brought out to the light. And then it shines. Hold it up to the sun and it will, it will shine brilliantly. And so that's what I mean by visibility here. When the Lord calls us His jewels, what He's saying is, I have made you my jewels to shine for me. To have a visibility in this world that others will notice. And it's not our own visibility, by the way. It's, again, nothing to do with us. But it's the light of God in our souls. It's the light of God uh, that He has given to us uh, that causes the one who's the jewel in a spiritual sense to actually radiate the light that the Lord wants the world to see. That's why John says in 1 John, walk in the light. And if you look here at verse number 16, you will notice certain features about this visibility. These are the people who are shining for the Lord because they feared the Lord. It says that in verse 16, then they that feared the Lord. Isn't it interesting? That's where it begins. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. And that's the first thing I notice here about their visibility. They are a people who have a fear of the Lord. They have a fear of the Lord because they now know something of the Lord's holiness and His majesty and His glory and His power. And they have a fear of the Lord, therefore, so they don't want to sin against Him. They want to keep His commandments so that He will be honored. And so that's how we are. That's the visibility that we should have. This fear, though, I only can mention these things because time is really gone here. But there's also fellowship with the Lord. Notice the next words in verse 16. It says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened. There's fellowship 
believers speaking one to another. And obviously, they're talking about things that have to do with God, because what they say pleases the Lord and glorifies the Lord. You see, it's in total contrast with what you read earlier. Remember I showed you at the start today how this all is introduced to us in chapter 3. Verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, strong against me, saith the Lord, speaking to those who are not as remnant people, but who are in the professing congregation of Israel. And now he says, here's my people, and they're my jewels, and they're visible in this world, because they not only have a fear of me, but they're in fellowship with each other and with me. We come together, they talk one to another, and the Lord's listening. My friend, that's true fellowship with the Lord. Then it goes on to say this. It says that they thought upon His name at the end of the verse. And there is fondness for the Lord. The word thought there means to reckon. And what believers reckon is that the Lord is the most important person in their lives. That's really what it's signifying and how that pleases the Lord. You see, the other folk in verse 13, their thoughts of the Lord were completely wrong. Uh, and we'll see more about that when I come back to that in the will of God. But these people's thoughts of the Lord are thoughts that have that essence to them. There's no one like our God. No one to be compared with Him. And so they've got a fear of the Lord, and they're in fellowship with the Lord and His people in general, and they've got this fondness for the Lord. And you know what the final thought is in all this? And it closes out the study today, their vindication, because in verse number 17, the Lord says, They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. That's the day of the Lord's coming, the second coming. And you know the children's hymn, When He cometh, when He cometh, to make up His jewels. It's based on this. And on that day, God will vindicate His people. You see, it's true, folks. As I said earlier, the Lord calls us as jewels, and if you really know your heart, and I know my heart, and all our failures, etc., etc., we would say again, how could the Lord ever say this about us? Because we have so many faults and so many discrepancies, and, and we let them down and all the rest of it. But the day will come when the Lord will vindicate His people. He say, these are mine. I have given them Christ's perfect righteousness. I own them. I recognize them. They're my jewels. You know what Daniel says to these same people? They shall shine as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12. It ties in with this. We'll leave it today. I trust the Lord will bless the word to your hearts and encourage you. Oh, it's good to be encouraged. We, need to, we only can be encouraged when we see not ourselves, but 
who we are in Jesus Christ. And this is it. And may the Lord encourage all of your hearts. Father in heaven, bless thy word, we pray. Use it for thy glory. Give us a visibility in this world. Oh Lord, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We want to draw attention to thee. So help us to live properly and speak properly and, and, and all that we are as human beings, that thou wilt be seen, that we will shine for thee. O oh Lord, may we be in sweet fellowship with thee, and may it be that thou art in our thoughts, and us not be like the ungodly. Thou art not in their thoughts at all. But Lord, may we think on thee, and dwell in thee, and rejoice in thee. Be with us now, and bless us, we pray, in the season of prayer, and the morning meeting, come alongside and visit us, we ask, for Christ's sake and for His glory. Amen.